0: and family. I am Dyshell Parker, your moderator for episode five titled How is the Penal System and Policing Hurting Racial Justice? Uh, Starting with Erin Shone Marsh, journalist and co-founder of Toledo Moms for Social Justice. Thank you so much for being here, Erin. Yay, happy to be back. You know I love it. I missed you, girl. Okay. (laughs) And we have Tejia Awad, my sister, published author and founder of Melanation Healing Project. Thank you so much for being here, Tay. It is always an honor, sister. Yes. Okay. And we are so excited to introduce our special guest, Rishaya Gee.
1: I am so excited. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. I'm going to try to mimic how awesome Tay's radio voice sounds. So if what? you hear me it is all kinds of inviting and velvety <laughs> and makes She's you feel at ease. So if you hear me talking and it sounds different, because I'm channeling my
2: inner <laughs> head. <it's laughs>
3: like, oh, I'm <laughs> flattered. Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> that velvety was, was uh-huh. the for me.
3: Although I think Shelly has the velvety voice and Kay has the radio. I mean, anyways, let's not get into that.
2: That's true. That's true.
3: Yeah.
0: I to give a brief bio um, to our listeners about the amazing work that Rashaya is doing. Um, Rashaya Gee is an attorney who specializes in and lectures about America's racial history and America's racism. She helps organizations and individuals build racial competent frameworks. That shift organizational cultures to cultivate racial equity and reorient perspectives from anti discrimination to anti racism. So, Rashaya, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you fell into the work of racial healing and reconciliation.
1: Yeah, so I am a Toledo native, born and raised here, went to Central Catholic for high school, and it was as an undergraduate student at the University of Toledo that I kind of came to racial consciousness. I frequently Tell people I defaulted to the same position that many of us do, mm-hmm. which is that race isn't important, and anyone who says otherwise is either a racist or race baiting, right? And, um, mm-hmm. in fact, <laughs> Dr. Renee Heberly was actually a huge catalyst for me into thinking critically about this kind of work because my position was, you know, I grew up really poor. Uh, My dad was shot and killed when I was 10. He was an addict, you know, utilized different forms of public assistance. Things were always cut off at our house. And somehow I'm still here and I managed to do well in school and get a scholarship. So if I can figure it out, everyone can, which was was my perspective. (laughs) And um, it wasn't until I had people significantly more smarter than I am (laughs) say, um, (laughs) what is that possible? um, You know, how critically have you thought about these things? Let me give you some scholarship, some literature that attempts to analyze and think critically about the way our society is set up and then come back to Mm. me and tell me if you still feel that way. And it was through that kind of piecemeal exchange of, you know, think about this, that I finally realized that I had been socialized into the same kind of racist norms and racist framework as, as anyone else had. And so I think that that revelation that perspective that experience that informs my perspectives helps me to have compassion for folks who are not yet here because I know I wasn't yet here until someone Mm. introduced me and until I had Mm -hmm. time to reflect and grapple with the material so that kind of thrust me into racial equity work anti-racism work and I think anti-racism work is inherently healing because such a large part of it is telling the truth about what happened yes. and telling the truth is healing, right? You cannot have healing without truth. You cannot have healing without justice. It's not possible. So doing this work necessarily steeps you in this kind of therapeutic healing uh, exploration of why we're where we are, why our society is the way it is. Wow. So I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was exactly an answer. (laughs) That was exactly that. That was exactly it. (laughs) And now I I will say this too. Now I think more about healing and reconciliation and what our society looks like moving forward. I'm not sure that vision is Mm -hmm. complete in my mind because we're still in such the nascent Mm -hmm. stages of even, you know, moving forward. Right. I think many people I think we've moved forward in the past like with the uh, 1960 civil rights movement and the legislation that came from those efforts but what i tend to think of is moving forward requires you to finish you know where you are you can't move forward if what's been behind you is still undone and so much of what yes. has happened throughout our history in terms of race is is still undone so you know I think we're in the nascent stages of of finishing that up and then trying to move forward and this is a necessary part of that so Mm. I'm thinking more now about what healing looks like what reconciliation looks like what building the bridge to wherever it is we're trying to go to a better America to a more racially equitable America looks like now that we're having this reckoning moment but so much of what's happened hasn't been addressed appropriately that I spent a lot of my time thinking about how to rectify where we are which will be the foundation of how we move forward Mm.
2: um you know what before we move on, Rashaya, I want to say that we haven't even gotten into the questions and I appreciate everything you said because Your start is the reason why I started the Melanation Healing Project, because I was stuck in that Mm -hmm. same place of I'm just now becoming Mm -hmm. woke. And then all the truth Mm -hmm. hitting me all at once. And what do you Mm -hmm. do with all that truth? And that's why, you know, with the Melanation Healing Project, we focus on healing Mm -hmm. the individual. And then after we heal the individual, then healing Mm -hmm. the community. So I'm really, you know, before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you right there. Just for all of
0: that. that was so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Power. Powerful, so powerful, mm-hmm. so Rashaya, I have a few <laughs> questions to ask you and also our host in regards to how the penal system and the current <clears throat> policing system is hindering justice for yeah. all. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <yes, laughs> right. Throw that in there. Okay. So historically black and, and brown people have always had a complex distrusting, excuse me, relationship with police. And the average black person feels like the penal system was not designed to protect us. Um, however, the rest of America never has had, you know, never mm-hmm. had this experience. So because of this, they are either in a complete <laughs> shock or in complete <laughs> denial, you know, after the death of George Floyd, for example, and the wrongful pardon of the officers who mm-hmm. killed Breonna Taylor. Tell us where your mind was during all of this.
1: I think I was thinking about how, well, let, let me start by saying, I guess part of the reason why this incident stood out to me is because it got so much attention but this is not an aberration, right? I mean, you made a mm. comment about how many, many Black people feel like the uh, current policing model and criminal justice system wasn't designed with them in mind. That is, that's true. We feel that mm. way because it's true, <laughs> right? I mean, right? And, 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 I, and I don't say that lightly. I say that that's what the Supreme Court said, right? I mean, that's, that's the thrust of the Dred Scott decision is Chief Justice Taney saying we did not. See, have you in mind when we created this? You were not in our minds when we thought about people, when we thought about citizens, certainly. And so, therefore, the black man has no rights which the white man is bound to respect. We have reduced you to slavery Mm -hmm. for your benefit. That is what the text of that opinion says explicitly, not even in like a romantic way, right? And the Supreme Court is the highest authority to decide what our laws mean, right? What our statutes mean. And that's what the Supreme Court said. And so, you know, the reality is that criminality, as it has um, evolved in America, has always uh, had race at its center, right? Criminality has always been inextricably linked to race since before America was a country, right? In the colonial times, we had laws about who could bear arms, right? Those are laws in Virginia pre-American Revolution. You can't have abolitionist Mm -hmm. literature, Uh, These are crimes. Having abolitionist literature and being Black is a crime, (laughs) right? Gathering without the presence of white people is a crime, right? And so our notions of criminality from the very beginning are infused with racial implications, racist language, racist beliefs about who can, um, you know, function as a full human. And so that is the foundation that our justice system is built on. Our courts, our policing models are built on. Um, And so specifically in terms of policing, 90 to 95 percent of African-Americans were in the South before the Great Migration. Right. So if you think about the Great Migration somewhere around Mm -hmm. World War One all the way to 1970, six million, a full half of the population of black folks sought refuge outside of the South because of Jim Crow. And so policing departments in the South were largely developed in response to black people. And so um, right. those are the kind of, that's kind of the origins. And we've never really tried to deconstruct that. We've just built something different on top of it, right? So so this graveyard mm. is still the basis and the foundation of our policing model. We just built on top of it, hoping that eventually it wouldn't matter so much, right? I think that that's the, that's the thinking. And so wow. anyone who was shocked by George Floyd or anyone who uh, was in disbelief, I think our folks who have not had to confront that reality or or folks who haven't confronted that reality uh, and folks who may not have been paying attention, (laughs) I guess. And I think um, a big part of it too is COVID has heightened everything. Having heightened anxiety about health your kids' uh, well-being and schooling, all of those things have exacerbated our already, you know, anxious society, right? We're already kind of an anxious society and that has heightened it. And so everything feels bigger, feels more severe, feels more impactful. And so I think that, this George Floyd incident, on top of the COVID anxieties, on top of the already tense political environment, it felt like a breaking point because we were already so severely mm. stretched with all the other things we're experiencing as a, as a whole society, not just racially marginalized communities, but everyone was already mm. experiencing a lot. And then we added this on and it just felt like a denial of humanity at a time where humanity was so important. If anything, we thought this common thread of COVID would unite us in a way... That we hadn't experienced in the past. I think many people believe that, and George Floyd was an indication that no. In the context of uh, you know endemics, in the context of things killing society, racism will win every time. I, th- I even saw a, a wow. meme on social media that said, "I can't believe COVID blew." you know, such a large lead. And, and people were like, <laughs> well, racism's on home court, right? And it's like this whole idea that um, racism is a constant actor and constant influence regardless of whatever else is happening. And I think people um, were able to see that in a way that they hadn't before because we were already under so much stress.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. It's so really like good. That? No, yeah. that's
2: just powerful. We all really need to take a step back and look at what role that we play. I like the fact that you keep emphasizing that where each person is or could be to the point where they are not as aware mm-hmm. as they could be um, and should be in issues mm-hmm. like this because even yes. Black and brown people, depending yes. on where you are uh, socially, yes. you yes. may not see it like you said it in your introduction. You mm-hmm. know, it took you some time mm-hmm. to get where you are now and that's why you have grace for one another. But then that's why this work is so important to get people to mm-hmm. wake up yes. and hone in a little bit more on what's going
3: on, even if it doesn't affect yes. you directly.
2: Yeah. Erin, mm-hmm.
3: would you like to add anything Mom? Um, uh, Yeah, I just think the more aware i become and the more i learn from people like rashaya um it makes me reflect back on my own experiences as a white girl with police and they've all been pretty lenient you know i mean honestly and i think it'd be really interesting to compare you know (laughs) all of our experiences and kind of line them up together and and i think that might make it obvious for people like for example When I was 16, I was pulled over in an affluent neighborhood that pulls people over for going literally less than five miles over. You all know what neighborhood (laughs) I'm talking about. (laughs) And um, I had picked up two of my friends who were at a coffee shop. They were the valedictorian and salutatorian of my class. One was white. The other one was Asian. White boy in the front seat with me. And when I got pulled over, the one in the back goes, oh my God, what should I do with my beer can? And I was like, you brought beer? in my car she's like oh, i just spilled it everywhere <laughs> so yeah i know so this is me 16 year old like oh my god i don't know what to do and i was salutatorian of my class so anyways he pulls us over he finds the beer cans and he mm-hmm. lets us go i mean wow <laughs> yeah right you guys are laughing and I, but i mean think of how that could have changed our lives we all would have been suspended kicked out of school no salutatorian no right. valedictorian one went to university of michigan and become an environmental i mean like and yeah i don't know it's just if there was more leniency, imagine how much more people could do instead of having their lives ruined because of some stupid thing I did when I was 16. It yeah, requires wow. people to
1: see you as this is an aberration. Yeah, exactly. This is someone that yeah. there's actually a great hashtag on Twitter if you're interested It's called Criming While White, Criming While White. And it is white people telling their stories of doing crime and being essentially treated the way Aaron was, right? As a way to kind of raise awareness about the double standard, right? And in fact, just to kind of do what Aaron said, my earliest memory of the police is being pulled over with my mom in a car. My mom and my younger sister, I may have been six, my younger sister's four. Uh, I mentioned my dad was an addict. My dad was an addict. And that's who they were looking for. Um, But they pulled us over. Mm -hmm. They took my mom out of the car. I remember standing outside on the side of the road while they hooked my mom's car up to a tow truck waiting and my mom in the backseat handcuffed and waiting (gasps) on my grandmother with the police. And I remember my grandmother coming to get us and us waiting until my mother came back. And I remember my mother getting in the house. I might, I might cry telling the story. I've never told this story. I remember my, I've never told it to anyone outside of our family. I remember my mother coming into my grandmother's door and just breaking down in tears and talking about the way that they searched her and they searched all the crevices of her body for (gasps) drugs. Uh, My mother doesn't even drink, never has, never has. My mother never goes out. My mom's a minister. She never drinks, never goes out. That wow. is my earliest memory of the police. And then obviously throughout my youth, as I, I got pulled over a, a bunch of times. I, I don't ever necessarily remember. I shouldn't say I don't ever. I don't remember before I was a grown up them being hostile. Uh, I just remember feeling like I had done something even though I hadn't. And I, and I don't mean like just by them pulling me over. I remember the interaction feeling tense and feeling uh, negative and feeling yes. like accusatory. Even though I knew I hadn't done anything, I still remember feeling like the interaction. I was in trouble and not and I was in legal mm. trouble. And then I was in like trouble, like, like this could go very badly. Um, and so I think Aaron's exactly right about the differences of, of experiences with the police and how pervasive it is. Even I remember <laughs> as a high school student, I, that's the other thing. Black officers tell these stories. I mean, they don't tell them to the department. Uh, they don't tell them at the department. And they certainly wouldn't tell them in public. But I had friends, tons of friends who were the kids, well, not tons, but like three or four as a, as a high school <laughs> student who were the kids of cops, who were the kids of sheriffs. And they, they used to tell us stuff all the time. They used to tell us about incidents where they'd pull over a white kid and their partner who was white would say, let him go. He reminds me of myself. And they'd pull over a black kid and hit the books, hit him with the mm-hmm. book. It wasn't a It wasn't a he reminds right. me of myself. There was no ability to see their selves in those young black men. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've heard officers tell me that they've gone on raids with a bunch of white officers. And when they don't find anything, the officers accuse the black officer in Toledo. In Toledo in the last 10 years, a black officer, they accused the black officer of having tipped off the people whose house that they were raiding. And that's why they didn't sign anything. Even though the black officer is like, I don't know these people. <laughs> right? Like, Just because I'm black and they're black, I don't know these people. Wow. And I've, I've had officers wow. tell me they don't tell these stories because they're worried their partners won't protect them if they're out on a call, if they they do this, if they tell these stories. So so this is pervasive at so many levels. And the fact that its power comes from not knowing about it, right? Its power comes because most people don't know and aren't Mm. aware. We vote for people. We vote for those judges. Most people have no idea what goes on in those courtrooms. Most people have never even been to those courtrooms. They don't Mm. read the opinions. They read headlines, and that's it. They have no idea what actually transpires and what their votes and their positions actually translate into. Mm -mm. That, that's that's not wow,
0: that's
3: not <laughs> <have> to
0: be on you. No, I mean I, and I can relate to a lot of what you're saying, mm-hmm. just like you said, that fear when you're being mm-hmm. pulled over, you automatically feel like you did something yeah. wrong, even though you yeah. didn't, you know.
2: But we were we were taught that, you know, because of how the penal yep. system began in the United States, we all know it wasn't the system wasn't no. designed to protect us, it was a it was designed us. to Yes, control us and yes. and, to, and to keep us in fear. So the conversations around the policing system is different in Absolutely. a white family versus a black family. We are taught to be you know be afraid and you know look down look, don't look them directly in the eye. Say yes sir no sir yes ma'am no ma'am comply with everything that they tell you to do yeah. even if it's uncomfortable right or wrong right or wrong right. you know. So mm-hmm. our experience is different, and so bringing this to the forefront yeah. is even more important. I know that uh, Chelsea, do you guys? Know uh Chelsea. She, I think she's a comedian and she did a Netflix um series. It's called Hello Privilege. i this. I need to watch it actually it's not a series oh, right it's, a do, it's a it's like a documentary and she talks about her experience of uh, being a white woman in privilege and she talks a lot about the police system and she said she she had a uh for most of her teenagers she had a black boyfriend and every time they got pulled over he would get in trouble and she wouldn't she knew she could talk any kind of way she wanted to to the police and she mm-hmm. still felt safe and protected and her boyfriend mm-hmm. was never protected so she's sh- you know she shines a lot of light on the experience that a typical white person would experience the with the police system versus what black people typically would experience, and then you know, the, there's another uh, uh, there's a Hulu movie that came out with Billy Holiday. Oh, yeah, that talked about Billy Holiday, yeah, um, yes. and, and yes. the strange I fruit. Put I don't that know on if, my if anyone. It's yes it's good. Yes, it's good. Exactly. yes 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 and so to bring to your point about black police yes. officers and that fear um when they were talking about making that movie they were saying they wanted to shine a light on yes. the position black yes. police officers had to play black police yes. officers had to play the bad guy they had they had to turn one they, they were taught yeah. to turn against one another to protect um the the penal system and so a lot yeah. of times they were in a tough yeah. position and they still are now. So I appreciate it. And it's you so important if we think
1: about what those yes. messages,
2: I know that the question was about how the penal
1: system and our criminal justice system is an impediment to justice. And I think it's so important. Those lessons are taught to everyone. Like we're taught yes. that's how we should behave, but white folks are often taught that's how we should behave. Right. And those teachings yeah. stem from Slavery, right? You knew during slavery where your position was. You knew to move off of the sidewalk. You knew not to look in the eyes. You knew to look down. And then after slavery, we passed black codes, right? Mm -hmm. And then even after they were no longer solidified in law, it had been the norm for so long. And there had been no deliberate effort to deconstruct that, right? to tear that down and replace it with something else. Right. We just kept mm-hmm. building on top of those old norms and those old cultures, and they have seeped into every societal institution. We are encouraged not to challenge the police, right? There is a do not challenge, do not you know, speak Mm -hmm. to inappropriate, if you think about all of the rules that particularly black folks and particularly black men are given in terms of engaging the police, it is still very much to assume a reticent subservient position in relationship to them so that you can survive, right? And that's such a perversion of what an yes. officer is, because mm-hmm. the officer is the public servant, right? The officer is the servant. But in that scenario, right. in that dynamic where race is involved, the racially subordinate caste member must assume, that, and I'm using cast like Isabel Wilkerson does in her book, so so cast with an e, mm-hmm. the, the 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 subservient, the member of the subservient racial caste must assume an attitude of deference, right? Almost reverence. All simultaneously, while knowing all of these things, while knowing that the police system wasn't developed with you in mind. Well, knowing that it has this very racist origin and knowing throughout history, the police have never been on the side of racial justice. Right. The police have never been a partner in racial justice or racial equality movements. They've always been an adversary. right? They've always been the entity that's attempting to stop uh, uh, folks from asserting their rights, folks from asking and demanding those rights. And so those dynamics color the entire system right? Um, the idea that priests are kind of cloaked in a presumption of rectitude and a presumption of credibility. The idea that moral depravity is associated with racial minorities, all of that stuff informs how our criminal justice system evolves and responds to people of color.
0: Now, why is it that the average person don't know about the penal system?
1: Um, you know, it's, it's always, I've been talking about this a lot lately, about the gap between the values of the criminal justice system as opposed to the values of a particular community or of a particular person. There's a significant gap, right? Also, I've been talking about the ways in which, again, our criminal justice system has kind of functioned historically as a receptacle for societal ills, right? So, people avoid it because associating with it tends to suggest that something's wrong with you or someone in your family, Um, Mm -hmm. the place of power. Right. And so if you're not an actor with power in that space, it's not a space you're, you're really gravitating (laughs) towards. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I just think Mm -hmm. if, if, if the law doesn't touch you, uh, you don't really have a reason to go there and and it's expensive and it's time consuming. And it's just, um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't think. <laughs> I think you're
3: right. I think that was a good I, answer.
0: It really was. Okay. Really, so right. defund yeah. the police. Um, defund the police seems to be the statement that further drives a wedge between communities, um, mainly because it seems yeah. to imply dismantling our police system. Um, some people think yeah. completely and doing away with it, you know, like to
1: use the language of reallocating funds because I think that that's, that more clearly communicates what it is that we're trying to do. I understand the value of defund the police, though, because the attempt is to relocate the harm, right? I mean, the biggest response we get when we talk about defunding the police is, is how are we going to be safe then, right? And so there's this conflation of safety and policing, right? That, that people believe that it's the police that keep us safe when in actuality, what the data shows us is that the police most of the time show up after the harm has already happened. Not mm. They're not preventing harm. They're showing up in response. And right. And then majority, 90% of the work that they do is misdemeanor stuff. It's not felony stuff. It's not... Um, and a lot of it is property stuff. So I say all of that to say in our society, we have a, a popular conception of policing, which is that they stop murderers and they stop rapists. And they're the reason that baggards aren't beating at our door. Um, and while th- there may be some truth about you know, having a, an organized, uniform, policing governing body certainly serves as a deterrent for some criminal behavior. The reality, though, is that regardless of policing, it's highs, it's lows, crime doesn't respond directly to it. That's the first thing. The second thing is folks who conflate policing and safety are unable to think about the ways in which the police themselves make people less safe. And so defund the police is an attempt mm. to reframe that thinking and explain how, because the police, and and I think it's actually clever in that it doesn't even portray the police as a source of violent harm, but more a source of harm in the amount of resources they consume, right? And so, mm. essentially, the message is the police are consuming so much public resources. These other areas that be, may be more effective uh, at preventing crime or or interrupting crime. Uh, aren't able to receive the resources they need. I Someone said, a friend of mine who's a teacher on Facebook said, that's insane we're receiving all this backlash about defunding the police. We've been defunding education for years, right?
3: Yes. So,
1: yeah, so exactly. So yes. The idea that, yes. you know, this one entity over here, that is causing harm in a variety of ways, or at least isn't as effective as we we need them to be in these other areas, right? Mental health and substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you know, like interpersonal conflict, Uh, the police can't address those issues adequately. And they're assuming a large amount of the budget because those are the only responses we have for these other areas. Let's try to think about where else we could be putting those resources to get better results. And I mean, to give you some examples, I had two people call me um, in one week once saying, I want to call someone, but I don't want to call the police. Can you help me? And one scenario was um, a woman had left her debit card at like a Burger King or something. And the young lady working behind the counter who was, you know, in high school, used the debit card to order her some door debt. Right. And the woman was like, I want her to do something to make amends for this or us to address this. I don't want to call the police on her. I don't want her to have a court case to do it, right? I want to, you know, meet at her church with her pastor and her mom. And maybe she come and does yard work for me one time. And she writes an essay about why this is inappropriate. But I don't want to have to call the police. I had another person call me. He said, me and my wife are in an argument. My wife has blocked me in so that I can't leave. I want to leave, I, I but... You know, I'm, I'm sitting in my car, I don't want to go in the house because her and I just had a really heated argument, but I want to leave. I want to call someone, but I don't want to call the police. And the reality wow. is that that's the only place we have to call for both of wow. those scenarios. And so defund the police is trying to challenge right. our society to think differently about public safety. And to think about where those resources, what we could do, what can we imagine, what can we create with with the fullness of all of our humanity, everyone's humanity at the center that both facilitates justice, but does also the minimal amount of harm. But like you said, when people hear it, they hear dismantling the police system and our society is so wedded to policing as the only avenue to safety that it immediately triggers sentiments mm. of, of of danger, sentiments of, of unsafeness. And so that people respond to that sentiment, I think, more than they respond to the actual logic and strategy behind it. And it's one of those things that if you don't think about, it will just seem normal. I was watching Guardians of the Galaxy with my daughter. I love that movie, by the way. And, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and <laughs> it's one of the one Me of too? sequels or whatever. They're in space presumably several millennia in the future, and um, they're in a prison in space with all these different space aliens. And it became clear to me, and this was like my fifth time watching it, right, because this is how insidious and kind of subtle it is. It became clear to me that what I'm learning from this subconsciously is that prisons will always be with us, right? That Mm. prisons are a natural, normal Ah. part of our society that has to be here. And of course, in these prisons, there was no good people, Right, all the people who are there are bad. All the people who are there belong there. All the people there have to be there, and the rest of us, safe thinking, normal, law abiding people are out in the world, right? And, and that's kind of how policing and the sentiments about policing, the sentiments about our justice system, the sentiments about our prison system have evolved in little ways like that, kind of wrinkled throughout the movies, the stories, the books, the conversations, all the things that we um, are socialized with in our society. And so those things are hard to sum with a slogan, especially when the police have such really powerful propaganda working on their behalf.
0: So true. Because of phase three, of Middle Nation um, Healing Project focuses on healing through community partnerships. How do we navigate?
1: I like to start with a set of facts. I think a big problem with like diversity efforts or uh, collective efforts where people are entering the conversation at, at different angles is that they try to build on this uneven terrain, right? My mm. approach is let's democratize the landscape first before we start building so let's make sure everyone has the same Mm. set of information the same set of facts and then from those facts use that as a departure point for what we need to do to move forward because right now as a society we are not I mean and that's a big part of what we've been talking about in in this hour in this podcast we are not operating with the same set of facts and that's due to two big well three big things I think first uh, we don't have any standardized curriculum in schools Folks do not learn about this stuff in school where they do so much of their learning, right? This is like race is talked about almost incidental to other stuff like Mm. Black History Month or Martin Luther King or like we talk about race as though it's part of this, not as though it's the central component. And then even Black History Month, you get a fact here, a fact there. Maybe you watch a video. There's no interrogation of race and what it means and how that meaning has evolved, right? And so this absence, this complete void uh, not only means that folks don't have an intellectual or cognitive framework in which to grapple with race, but also suggests that we don't need to learn about it. Right. Because all the things we need to learn about, we're learning in school. Right. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is parents don't teach it. Right. right? It's similarly absent up until a, a fairly recent move to start um, explicitly yeah explicitly incorporating racial competence into parenting educating the child relationship has largely been characterized by an absence of discussing race unless and except in those instances where black or brown or yellow or whatever other crayon color that we're picking to describe people (laughs) right unless those parents are trying to transmit information to their children about safety you know we just don't discuss so those two absences combined with the, what I was just talking about with Guardians of the Galaxy, this kind of uncritical consumption of racial messaging throughout our society. You know, I, I actually just bought a book. It was on our page. It was on the Toledo Social Justice Month. That's where I got it from. BG. <laughs> I'm like halfway through this book <laughs> about the Klan and BG, many of which, by the way, were police officers, right? And so they were in the book, they talk about how the Klan in Bowling Green would go to churches on Sunday and do a Bible reading and submit a check or go to schools and and, in assemblies. And um so so that is and these folks, this isn't that this is like the 1920s. So so okay, a hundred years ago, but a hundred years ago is when at least my grandmother or my grandmother's um mother would have been in school. Right. So these lessons are absolutely being transmitted through generations. Yes, it's just part of our mm-hmm. rearing. And so we, until we address that, until because folks hold on to those beliefs fiercely, race is not a subject matter where people have casual opinions. They have very strongly <laughs> held opinions. And so until we can get to a place where we uproot and we're tearing down that foundation deliberately and intentionally, not just hoping, it'll fade away eventually, but because those, they aren't. I mean, people like to say that younger generations are more uh, accepting. And, and to some extent, that's true. But also, if you look at that Charlottesville rally, those are old people. Those people are my mm-hmm. age or younger. Right. And so yep. I think my goal is always we need to start with a standard set of facts. We need to get a curriculum. That explores what's actually happened because in my experience once folks have exposure to what's actually happened we're we're in a much better place to talk about what we need to do to move forward but if you're still thinking slavery happened that long ago yes. air quoting, um, and <laughs> you didn't own any slaves and black <laughs> folks were essentially okay after slavery and all of the indigenous land we have, we got through treaties or some type of fair squabble, <laughs> right? And, you know, that, that, you know, Mexicans are an invasion. If these are, if this is your foundation, because this is the propaganda you've been exposed to and your grandparents were exposed to and your mm-hmm. parents were exposed to, and they believed it exactly, then it is impossible it. for us to get together and look at each other and say, how do we move forward, right? Because, we just, we, what? We're operating on two completely different so universes. True. So my approach before I do any work is how are we going to democratize this landscape? And if this isn't a place where we democratize the landscape, my experience has been a place where people are going to come and vent And then leave with the same beliefs they had when they got there, just more deeply entrenched.
3: Ah, (laughs) Erin. I want to highlight some of the things that really (laughs) stuck out. For example, when you were talking about defunding the police, um, I love that you said police themselves make people less safe. And um, that's one thing that really stuck with me. I mean, you look at... some of these especially black Mm. men who had mental health illness who were killed by Mm -hmm. police like walter wallace in philadelphia patrick warren Mm -hmm. in texas daniel prude Mm -hmm. in new york and Mm -hmm. all of these people i firmly believe would still be alive if they could have called someone else else, like Mm -hmm. a mental health expert Mm -hmm. yes and i mean that's something mental health and addiction Mm -hmm. also run rampant Mm -hmm. in my family so those are two things that are close to me but um it just to me it just makes sense to have someone else to call (laughs) i mean and and i would think the police would be happy like hey i don't have to deal with mental health issues anymore like win-win for everyone (laughs) um and i love that you said that foundation we need to start with the foundation in order to build on it because yes that's exactly right we need to start with the standard set of facts otherwise you got one person way down here someone else way up here and you're trying to build on the person who's way up there and that you're leaving yep. the other person yep. behind, yep. you know? Right. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have to say.
0: You know what, I, w- I wanna add something to this because working in healthcare, um, we have so many dots that are connected when it comes to mm-hmm. patients and it's for a reason so we can better service them. So why isn't yep. that prevalent in other departments like justice? You know, when we have an issue, we have a patient that says, hey, you know what? I don't feel like I can live anymore we immediately are on the phone with the hospitals. We're trying to admit them. We're trying to make sure that they're comfortable and um, able to allow us to assist them. This is something that should be a part of the policing system. They should have something in hand that says, hey, you know what? We have a rescue uh, crisis at hand. We need to get someone that is um, in the field that's able to come here. And maybe just like they Mm -hmm. do if someone's Mm -hmm. on top Mm -hmm. of a building and and saying they're going to jump off, right?
1: What I tell people is, you wouldn't let a doctor treat you without asking about your history, right? And not even just your mm-hmm. individual history. They ask you about your right. family history, right? What, what kinds of diseases run in your family, right? What kinds of things? Because we know that that is going to be so critical yes. in understanding who you are. Right, We even ask about your social habits. Do you drink? How often do you, are you sleeping through the night? Right, Because we understand that in order to be able to treat you, we're gonna need a comprehensive mm-hmm. understanding of all the things that could impact your health. Well, we don't do that with America, right? We need to know America's history in order to treat her right. and mm-hmm. not just know the kind of fluffy parts, right? know all of it. And historically, America has turned away from that history, has said that that history isn't important, has attempted to conceal actively that history. Uh, and so I think that the first step is just getting comfortable and encouraging people and normalizing discussions about race. This shouldn't have to be a burden loaded down with shame and guilt and tension
0: mm. and hostility.
1: And, yes. and that is so bizarre.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's and we've normalized just,
1: that, you know, it, it's impossible mm-hmm. to move forward until we repair what's been done. It is impossible. It can't happen. And so and, and it's, it's interesting because Thomas right. Jefferson actually wrote this in one of his writings was, you know, it, just that he didn't believe that the two races could coexist equally. And, and at that time, it was two races. Mm. I'm here quoting, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, but that was, I love your was, you know, that he said that we've, we've, we've caused too much harm and black people's memories are too long. Right. And what I tell people is, is that it's not even so much memory as much as, as, as it's necessary to know these things, to survive, to understand how the institutions operate and why they operate that way. And so and the body never forgets. And I tell people that as mm. long as this problem is the same problem, it will reproduce the same kinds of folks. It it doesn't have a choice, right? So much of what I write and what I see other scholars write reflects a lot of what's been said, a lot of what our predecessors in the 20s. And the I mean, because the circumstances haven't changed that much. So they produce a similar, almost an echo. And until Mm. we honestly Mm. try to deconstruct that foundation of inequity, I'm not sure there's, you can't build on a foundation not like that. So.
0: Oh, boy. So, Rashaya, I do want to ask you, being, with, being that your experience is connected to the penal system, what other changes do you feel people in your industry
1: um, can make? So I think judges who can send people to prison should have to spend time in prison before mm. they can run. You can send somebody yeah. for up to six Love months. That. Maybe you should have to spend 30 days. If you can spend somebody for a lifetime, you should have to spend six months. You should have to know what you're sentencing people to. You should have to know how it Mm. works, not how probation officers tell you it works, not how correctional officers tell you it works. You should have to experience that yourself. And I think that it'll do a couple things. One, if folks believe that they're too good Mm. to spend time there, then maybe that tells us a lot about whether or not you should be deciding whether or not other people go there. Mm. And then also, I I think that that we need to reestablish humility as a currency. In the way that kind of arrogance is right we we often reward arrogance in the name of like it, it seems like confidence maybe I, i'm not sure but what i what we we have a name for it and we actually call it robitis robe which just talks about the ways in which judges ascend to the bench and then um have this very condescending very pretentious kind of air around them and i think that that's an impediment to true justice um, because it separates you from, from people. It separates you from the people you're uh, in front of you, from the people you are supposed to be serving, right? Because being a servant requires a level of humility, right? That's why we call mm. them public servants. We don't enforce that for any of our elected officials. And I think that that's particularly uh, of consequence within the legal space because liberty is so fundamental to humanity and because they have the ability to, to strip you of it. Uh, and so I think that this space needs more humility than other spaces. Uh, the other thing I think should happen, I, I've been saying this a lot lately, we we have got to change how we operate as a community, as a society, and particularly in Black churches. Folks who are looking for the vote will frequently go to Black churches to ask for the vote. And they show up on, some, on a Sunday, they ask for the mic, they stand there and they give mm. you their spiel about why you should vote for them, and then they leave. Um, and then, mm-hmm. if you see them again, <laughs> it's probably <Right>. just there <laughs> either asking for your vote again or maybe there as a worshiper, but they do not come back in their official capacity to ask what they can do for you, right? Uh, they ask you to get them elected. They got mm-hmm. elected and then nothing, right? And so, what I told my church is we need to stop doing this. If they want to come and give their spiel, we need to be able to ask them questions. They need to give us notice that they're coming in advance you should also make space for community concerns to be heard. It is not a privilege for us that they show up asking for our votes, right? They need our votes Mm. to get elected and we should hold them to a higher standard to Mm. have them, right? And so small things like that, I've encouraged my church to implement a, a standard procedure for allowing them to have access because what happens is They get access to a whole congregation of voters. And if you do this every Sunday for several Sundays in a row, you have a substantial uh, audience that you've captured with this propaganda if it can't be interrogated and it can't withstand interrogation. And so small things like that, right, just reclaiming our power, reclaiming Mm -hmm. um, our autonomy and thinking intentionally about how we can engage these systems in ways that work for us because historically the justice system we don't engage it voluntarily it happens to us and we have to start thinking about how we can engage these systems in a way that don't happen to us in a way that we cultivate a
3: relationship that is that is mutually beneficial mm-hmm. oh. Also when speaking with our children, um, she suggested using the term men in cages. I, I just, I really love that. I feel like my, my son especially is very black or white. Things are good or they're bad. He has a hard time with the the middle, the gray area mm-hmm. sometimes. And so it was like people in prison mm-hmm. are bad. Mm-hmm. And so having this conversation about men in cages and there are plenty of innocent people in prison just was very eye opening mm-hmm. for him. And it, it kind of transformed how he sees things and allowed him to maneuver in that gray space. That's good. So um, I think as a parent. Yeah. So I think as a parent, using terminology mm-hmm. like that could also be another small thing we can do to work toward this. I use that language in court too, Aaron. Just a heads up. <laughs>
1: Oh, oh, do,
0: do? you? Yes, okay.
3: do. Well, that's good,
1: <laughs> right? I was just telling my mom this earlier today, is that it's it's easy to start to see that kind of barbarism as normal because it's happening so often around you all the time that it seems normal. We were talking, yes. we were actually talking in the context of um, the health system and and. Uh, we were talking about how someone we know uh, recently found out that they had cancer. And they said they didn't feel like the hospital staff had a sense of urgency around this diagnosis. And I was saying to my mother, I said, oftentimes folks who Mm -hmm. are operating in a space consistently begin to normalize the harm of that space because it becomes so routine that having an extreme Mm -hmm. emotional reaction every time would just exhaust mm-hmm. you and drain you in really impossible ways. And so, so it becomes, to, as, a, as kind of a mechanism to cope, you kind of normalize it. And frequently, those folks need reminders about how grave and severe what's happening actually is. And so one of my yeah. ways of doing that in court was to use the terminology of caging. Because prison, unless you've been there you can't internalize the harm. I mean, unless you spend a lot of time reading about prison experience from people who've been there. Most people though, don't know what prison is like, right? And a lot of people mm-hmm. have conceptualized it as a okay place, right? Like so they get education, true. they mm-hmm. get outdoor exercise, they get three square mirrors a day. It's not that bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I attempt to do in using that language is exactly what you said is just to raise our awareness or raise the harm back to the surface level. So we can see, no, this, what we have here is a lot of pageantry around something very barbaric and you need to mm-hmm. all be reminded that someone in our community is losing a piece of their humanity because we all believe that that's necessary for our safety, right? And we're going to take yes. that from them by putting them in a cage, similar to how we treat animals at the zoo right and so mm-hmm. um we all need to remain aware that this is not something that's casual or thoughtless this is heavy right this is life changing this is going to rock someone's not only life but the life of their children and the lives of whatever industry they were working in i mean this yes. is so so yeah i i still use that mm-hmm. language to convey the heaviness of it or to accentuate the heaviness of it in spaces where maybe sometimes it's become dulled because we're seeing it so often
0: hmm that is so true. And mm-hmm. it, basically, I really think that yeah. people are becoming desensitized to the trauma that happens with this. And, and that's why it's so important, you know, in this phase three of healing, um, because racial healing is so complex. You know, we mm-hmm. need a multi-pronged approach that involves everyone with various mm-hmm. backgrounds.
1: Mm. Rhonda McGee, she is a law professor in California. And her book is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves Kay. and Transforming Our Communities. Through mindfulness. Wow. <laughs>
0: I got so many notes from you today. I got a few oh, things. Oh, it's always you know?
3: <laughs> like that I'm either re- listening to a new podcast or using new terminology or Oh, whatever. my goodness. Oh, yeah. I love
0: it. You know, this is what Melanation is about, you know. I, I'm just so thankful for all of this
1: content. Rishaya, what are
0: some takeaways for our listeners? A
1: standardized curriculum in schools. I think that that's a good start is mm. creating you know, we keep saying we need a standard set of facts. We need a shared Mm -hmm. framework as a community. If we're going to build community with one another and we're going to build it um, around equity or in ways that are equitable, that means that we're going to have to include the full person, the full personhood of everyone that's a party to that dialogue and everyone that's a party to that community. And that means necessarily representing the truth about their history and relationship to this country. And so I think that advocating for... Curriculums to teach about race is is a huge step in that. I think exactly what uh, Melanation is doing here, right? Creating space intentionally to have these dialogues. That's something else we need to do. I think we've historically expected mm-hmm. that these dialogues would just happen yes. spontaneously, mm-hmm. right? You put a black person and a white person in the room together, and they're going to talk about race and work it out, and it's going to be <laughs> fine, right? Like that's been our thinking about <laughs> diversity. All we just need to do is invite those people who've been excluded into the space and it'll sort itself out, right? Like,
3: yeah, right, boom, like, problem solved.
1: But, um, we need to be creating the spaces to have these <laughs> dialogues, not relying on some amorphous, amb- ambiguous, um, ambiguous, amb- I was debating between ambiguity and ambiguous, uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, spark-like instantaneous, like, dialogues. We need to be cultivating those spaces. Um, I think we are going to need to, uh, in terms of attributes, we're going to need to extend grace to others, right? And distinguish between someone who is Mm. attempting to be offensive and someone who's genuinely curious, but maybe insensitive, right? So we're going to need to extend Mm -hmm. grace. But on the flip side, folks are going to need to really cultivate some humility to approach this dialogue. You need humility Mm. and kindness to have this dialogue because you're going to hear things and you're going to be exposed to things that are going to be uncomfortable yes. and or unless you're out of this, if you're outside of this space um, that are going to cut against everything that you've historically believed and been taught. I remember back to that conversation I talked about having with Dr. Heberly. I remember when she said something to me about how everyone believes they're going to be a millionaire. When in reality, there's only a small fraction of the population that ever actually achieves that amount of money and most millionaires inherit their wealth. They don't make it. And I'm <laughs> I remember when she said that. I remember mm-hmm. thinking that has to be wrong. <laughs> there has to be like there has to be like fifty percent of the population are millionaires, and I'm, at least and at least seventy five percent of those people made their own money on their own, right? Because that is how it's portrayed, right? Is there? Anybody can be a millionaire. You can also, so I remember when she heard it, I immediately rejected it, right? We we, we call this confirmation <laughs> bias, right? We are more receptive to the information that confirms what we already believe, right? But I remember being like, that can't be right, right? You're going to have a lot of those moments in this yes. work. You have a lot of those, I have a lot of those moments mm. in this work, um, especially when stuff is hard, right? Like, so when I found out that Tulsa wasn't an isolated incident, that two years before it happened in, um, uh, Elaine and then two years later it happened in Rosewood right and so um, um ah. you're going to need humility you're going to need kindness you're yeah. going to need grace you're going to need, need a standardized set of facts uh, and you're going to need to cultivate these conversations intentionally you cannot hope that if you move into a neighborhood that has you know a larger percentage of racial minorities than normal this neighborhood must then therefore Uh, Be having, you know, really woke, really progressive conversations and, and dialogues and, you know, events. No, right. It doesn't happen unless you make the decision to happen. Where we got to today in terms of race is the result of people making deliberate decisions about race with race in mind. What we've tried to do thus far is to undo those decisions by not making racially Mm -hmm. conscious decisions. We have tried to respond to race specific problems with race neutral solutions and that is not possible. And so we have to start cultivating these spaces intentionally and engaging in this work intentionally. So anyway, I think that those are probably some of the biggest factors to help us move forward. Mm.
0: So, because these discussions can mm-hmm. be quite heavy, um, this is my favorite portion because we like to end on a lighter note and energy, mm-hmm. whoop, whoop. and <laughs> and talk about like our favorite things. You know, what you're raving and craving. So today, my question, and I want to start with you, Rashaya, oh. um, is oh. what is your favorite <laughs> snack and why?
1: So Erin knows <laughs> what my actual favorite snack oh, is, yeah. but I'm not. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to scare you all. I'm going to say my favorite. I don't have a favorite snack. I'm a foodie enthusiast.
3: Oh, share no, I am one. not. Come on,
1: share I, it. Uh I'm a foodie enthusiast. I like anything. I like trying new stuff. I like things that are interesting. Things you wouldn't like. I like when lavender is in food, right?
3: Like, oh, this sounds
1: good or fancy or something that'll help me sleep, maybe.
3: I'm, I would.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: a sleepy snack okay
3: <laughs> um i mean if we're talking like late night netflix mm. i've had two whiskeys and now i want a <laughs> snack it, it would probably be uh <laughs> and uh almond flour crackers Ooh. i just i love uh, it's really not that fancy i'm lactose intolerant fancy. but i love cheese so <laughs> but uh <laughs> and then another kind of light-hearted <laughs> thing i don't know if this is a freudian thing or if it's because i'm really 12 in my head, but every time someone says penal, I think penile. So what? every time, <laughs> this whole time, the penile system. The- you know what I think my favorite thing is? I, I love it so theme much. Festival.
0: Festival. Festival.
3: Oh, Festival. yeah. That's What's that? Like you know, Old West End Festival, What's that the Rishaw Ann Arbor festival? festival, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Pride. Oh, I love yeah, oh, Miss Festivals. Yeah, I, mean, like, I,
1: I, I think one year I'm going to travel <laughs> and I'm going to go to one festival in every all fifty states. Ooh, I love that.
3: <laughs> I know. I'm like. I'm in on that. Just make
1: like, sure you take
3: yes! me with yes.
0: you, Rashaya. And yes. we're going
3: to the like the Harry <laughs> Potter you, festival. Okay, while we're at and it, like, yeah. <laughs> 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 I might know not that be, to me, sing, but, it but it sounds I like <laughs> <you> know, Wisconsin. <laughs> I bet yeah. it is. I bet it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, Tay put out there that Kim- she kim-chi. loves kimchi, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Kimchi, kimchi. She likes it on. Toast, <laughs> eggs, everything. You can sprinkle her with kimchi, okay? So I had to let the world know that this is Tay's favorite snack. Um, since we have an audio issues on that end, so you guys are awesome. I, I love this so much, you guys. I want to thank all of you guys, and especially you, Rashaya, uh, for sharing your amazing energy and your experiences with us. This has been so enlightening. Um, we also want to thank all of our listeners for their support and feedback. You guys can follow our podcast on iTunes, <laughs> Google, Spotify, Breaker. Here we go, Castbox, Overcast. Pocket Cast, Radio Public and Stitcher Um, for questions, comments and information on our next healing circle, which actually begins March 27th at 6 p.m. So I do want to encourage people to go to the Melanation Healing Facebook page. Please fill out the uh, registration uh, form so that way you can engage in the next healing circle. You can also follow also, on Instagram and Twitter at Melanation Heal and Melanation Project Healing. For more information on Erin and Toledo Moms for social justice, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Toledo Moms for social justice. Roshia, is it okay to give your information?
1: Um, my email is r-a-s-h-y-a-l-a-w at gmail.com. So certainly reach out, engage. I'd love to have the dialogue further.
2: Mm
0: absolutely absolutely i'm keeping that information for myself as well I do want to say this, and I'm I'm speaking on behalf of Teji as well. We definitely will be reaching out to you for our next cohort with Melanation. We need you so much. You have so much wisdom. I'm just really thankful. And I I look forward to seeing just everything that you're going to do in the communities. Wow. I want everyone just to stay tuned for next week's episode with special guest Sarah Jenkins as we discuss why is housing access important to equity? So I do want to encourage everyone to stay tuned for that. Bye.
1: Bye.